Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in 3, 2, 1. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode 76 and is being recorded on November 2nd, 2017. Today's topic, Spectral Scans, Star Trek Discovery Episode 7, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. This is a spoiler-filled episode, and you have been warned. I'm Eric Berry. And I'm Eric Dewey. And this Eric-filled episode is sponsored by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off your first order. Hello, Mr. Dewey. Hello, Mr. Barry. Yeah, we're going to have to get used to that. Yeah. <laughs> An Eric-filled show going on here. <laughs> well, fortunately for Aaron, he's having this great vacation in Europe. Out of the country, yeah. going on vacation, can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he's having a great time just based on the uh the Instagram photos and seen so far. So yeah, so we're we're filling in so that we can keep mm-hmm. things going week to week while Discovery is being uh put out every week. Yeah. After this we only have what, two more episodes left? Yeah, I think it's two before they're doing a break at nine. Yeah. Yeah, they're doing nine and then the last six episodes are after the little break. But it's only like a month break, I think, isn't it? A month and a half, like six weeks or something like that. Yeah, I think so. We can all binge during the holidays. <laughs> yep. I'll be catching up on all sorts of stuff uh, during that break, including any of the novelizations that may come out during that time. I might try to sure. dig into some of the comics and stuff that have been done. So Yeah. Oh, uh, speaking of novelizations, I actually finished the Star Trek Discovery book, Desperate Hours. Right on. How did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. I really liked the little nods to the uniform differences and differences between the two ships, the Enterprise and the Shenzhou. And I really like the whole backstory with Spock and Michael Burnham. It's fantastic. It really gives some backstory to the series that they don't necessarily explain. And... Even when I when I read this, this I, I finished reading it after the Lethe episode where Michael finds out the big secret with Sarek and Spock and and this novel really foreshadows that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, you wonder if did they make David Mack aware of Oh, they did. Okay. He was actually involved in every step of the process. He had access to the final scripts and and all of that stuff, and he worked with the writers to craft this story. And, wow, it really ties in to Discovery. And I almost want to say that this is canon, since it was all with the writer's permission, and it was foreshadowing all these events. I think we can call that a canon novel. Yeah, I believe it is uh, intended to be. I'm not sure how their extended universe is working currently. All of these things, when they have the comics and the books and the TV shows and the movies and everything, it's sometimes difficult to mm-hmm. identify and define, but is considered official canon and what is not. And I believe that it was said that these particular novelizations, the, the novelizations that are specifically coming out under the Discovery banner were intended to be taken as canon with the show mm-hmm. but I, I could be wrong on that because i think it was before the show came out that i read that they were going to do that so things may have changed since then as well 
But yeah, when I was reading it, I know I brought up on the show before I asked you if you were picturing like Leonard Nimoy Spock or Zachary Quinto Spock. And even while I was reading it, I pictured young Leonard Nimoy Spock as seen in (laughs) The Cage. So I, I couldn't help that. It just happened. But it was a fantastic story and I highly recommend it to anyone who wants more discovery in their life. Yeah, I hope Aaron is able to uh, to read it on his vacation. I know he had intended to, so we can get his take on it uh, in a couple episodes when he's back. But uh, yeah, so far, two out of three hosts agree. Read Desperate Hours. It's very good. And I cannot wait for the new one coming out, I think in what, January? It's coming out? Yes, I believe it was uh, January that that was reported. And that one's not by David Mack. That one's by a different author. But I believe David Mack does have another one in the works. Oh, great. Probably going to be coming out later in 2018. Let's get into the news. So it's a more serious topic for sure. The past couple months, uh, the news has been heavy with uh, sexual allegations coming from Hollywood and you know, the whole Weinstein situation. And Anthony Rapp, who plays Lieutenant Paul Stamets on Star Trek Discovery, he did an interview with BuzzFeed where he said that when he was 14 years old and Kevin Spacey was 26 at the time, that they met in 1986 and they were both in Broadway shows. Rapp was in Precious Sons and... Spacey was in A Long Day's Journey Into Night, and uh, one night Spacey invited Rap to his apartment for a party, and then later Rap says that he found himself bored and watching TV in Spacey's bedroom, and he realized that he was the only one left after the party with the actor, and Kevin Spacey tried to make some moves on Anthony Rap, and he was kind of holding him down, trying to seduce him, And then he went to the bathroom, closed the door, and then got out of there. And this was back in 1986, so that was 31 years ago. But Anthony Rapp said that it was only because of people who were being courageous and coming out against sexual harassment. Yeah, this whole misconduct thing that's going on. um, And it is something that has been pervasive in Hollywood for many, many years. And it's kind of one of those things that everybody knows that it goes on a little bit, but nobody wanted to admit it because the people who were involved were just too big and powerful. And each individual who was victimized Mm -hmm. felt like they were too small and too insignificant to to bring down this big person. Right. And it's not until all of them started coming forward basically at the same time and making these accusations and making it known what was going on, that it really became uh, something more empowering for these victims to come forward and say something. And hopefully this is going to be a snowball effect that will make it so that people will feel empowered to report things like this immediately, regardless of whether or not they feel that they're uh, you know underpowered or if they think well, I'm not gonna you know I'm gonna get blacklisted if I call out this person. We don't want that type of culture in our media. Coming from those of us who enjoy the the work that this has done, this taints a lot of things for me. You know, right. I like Kevin Spacey's work as an actor and now I have to, you know, anytime I see him in something, this is going to be in the back of my mind. And it's not, it does not help me enjoy his work at all. And now, since this, other people have come forward and said that Spacey has done these things as well. It looks to be a pattern. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, it did not help that Spacey's response to the oh, accusations. God. There may have been one or two worse ways, like maybe. Right. <laughs> he could have come out and threatened to kill him or something. There been one other way that would have been worse. But instead, what he does is he comes out and he says, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. I don't remember. If it did, I'm so sorry. But hey, now I'm gay. Yes, like, I'm going to come out now. I'm going to use this opportunity to come out to the world dude, nobody cares if you're gay or not. Right, that's not the issue. The issue is that you were hitting on a 14-year-old when you were 26. Wouldn't matter if it was a 14-year-old boy or a 14-year-old girl. That's not right. Right. Anthony Rapp is one of those people who does not look his age. So you know at 14, he didn't look like he was over 18, for sure. Oh, no! I actually saw someone posted a playbill from that Broadway show that had his picture in it and he looked like he was 11 or 10 yeah he had the big glasses he had braces he he did not look like a young teenager yeah uh, you know you look at him now and my first impression when i when i first saw him you know in discovery was i didn't think he was over 30 right so to think of you know how he looked when he was 14 you know trying to claim that well maybe he looked older no no he didn't he definitely didn't right and at least you know to his credit at least spacey didn't try that argument but the idea of him being like hey maybe it happened maybe it didn't i was really drunk so i don't remember but hey guys let's not talk about that let's talk about the fact that i'm gay now no dude no and pretty much the reaction from everyone online was like wtf this is the worst way to come out in the history of coming out the best worded response i saw was uh, also on twitter uh from zachary quinto you know also attached to the the star trek world and yep. also a gay actor and he basically is like when you come out especially after a long time the idea is that you're supposed to be empowering people to be able to come out sooner so they don't have to hide it their whole lives yeah and you're using it to try to cover up something that you've done. It, it's, it was not good. And uh, it's just sad that this type of stuff happens. And I'm really hoping that this whole thing is going to snowball, like I said, and just get to a point where people start reporting it right away. Right. You know, some people are concerned. Somehow this is a concern that some people have that we're going to end up with people wanting chaperones when they do casting calls and stuff. So what? If somebody wants to bring a chaperone to a casting call, why should that be a problem unless your intention was to try to take advantage of them? Why should another person in the room be an issue? Exactly. I also wouldn't be surprised if people showed up with their phones on record in their pocket to casting calls or, or these other types of events and things like that. I think that's perfectly fine. You know, if whatever you need to do to feel safe mm -hmm. until we get to the point where people don't feel safe making the assaults. That's the problem right now is people feel safe right. in making these assaults because they don't think that they're going to get caught because they don't think the people that they're seeing. And that's what it is. It is an assault. They think that they're not going to get reported. They think mm -hmm. these people know that I control their job, their livelihood. They're not going to report me. And we need to get past that and make it a culture within Hollywood where people say, no, mm -hmm. that is not acceptable. And if you do that, I'm going to tell. I'm going to make it known. And that way, hopefully, people will stop thinking, hey, here's an easy target. 
and instead maybe look at their own <laughs> impulses and think, right. hmm, why is it that I feel that I need to do this? Maybe I should work on that internally because people have impulses and urges all the time that they don't act on. It's when people get into a position of power and have a sense of security that they won't get caught that they begin to act on them. And that's what I, I hope we're seeing start to come to an end with this culture of reporting that, that we've seen, the whole Me Too uh, movement, just getting it out there, how much it's happening so that people, when it happens to them, they know I'm not alone. Yeah. This isn't just happening to me. This happened to other people. And if it's if this person is doing this to me, chances are they've done it to somebody before me. And if I don't report it, they're going to do it to somebody after me. So moral of the story don't be a dirtbag, and if you are assaulted by a dirtbag, report it. Yeah, and hopefully this type of pattern in Hollywood can be tempered and you know we can expose a harsh light on it. I really respect Anthony Rapp for coming forward and not only being empowered by other people who have gone through this and made their stories known, but also him adding his voice to that and maybe empower some other people to come forward if something like this has happened to them. After the BuzzFeed article, that's pretty much all Anthony Rapp has to say about that. Yeah, he did tweet specifically. You know, people were asking him questions on Twitter, and he said, I'm standing on the shoulders of so many courageous people who have come out and told their stories to have the courage to do it myself. But everything I have to say about the incident, I said in that interview. So I'm not going to be answering any further questions about it here or anywhere else. So he said what he intended to say. Yep. That's that. He's not trying to milk it any further for anything else. And I had seen there was something else on Twitter from like a very low actor on the Star Trek totem pole. <laughs> uh, definitely not one of the main cast members. Just completely flipped the script and was calling people. I'm not going to name names. Well, no, you know what? I am going to name names. So Manu Intranami, he played Icheb on Voyager. He made some very disparaging remarks towards Anthony Rapp and was basically in support of Kevin Spacey and was just saying, oh, you know, it's all political correct bullcrap and, and this and that. Just a whole series of tweets that were just totally uncalled for and unwarranted. He was saying things like, oh, well, at 14, I was doing this and this, and I had no problem consenting, and blah, blah, And it's like, whoa, dude, this isn't about you. First of all, it's not about you and whether or not you would consent at 14. It's about the fact that it was a 26-year-old making a move on a 14-year-old who wasn't consenting, who was trying to get right. away from the situation. This is not him relating a, hey, yeah, when I was 14, I uh, had sex with this person, and now I look back on it and think maybe I shouldn't have. No, it was like this. He tried, and I, I was able to get away. I saw you and Aaron had been had been talking about this, and I was like, who's this? Because it wasn't even somebody that I was following on Twitter. Like I'm, They were far enough out of the range of, of stuff that I pay attention to that I was like, who? But then I went to their feed and I took a look and he's not saying anything that I haven't heard said about any person, male or female, who's right. come out and named their assaulter when the person who committed the assault is of a higher status. He said stuff like, what did he think was going to happen when he went to a, a party? Uh. 
things like that. The same stuff. Like he might have even said something about like, well, what was he wearing? Maybe he was wearing something that may, you know, no, that's not how this works. And it was so toxic. And the only reason Aaron and I followed him was initially he followed both of us and, you know, was interested in coming on the podcast and doing an interview. And at the time he was involved in that Renegades production that eventually did not become a Star Trek thing because of the whole short film thing that the limitations that Star Trek set forth. But anyways, at one point he made a Twitter comment. Oh, I wonder if some of the Star Trekkers are going to unfollow me because of this and whatever, live your life, blah, blah. And that was the thing that got the most response. People saying, yeah, I lost all respect of you because of this. Like, I'm done with you. And so it's unfortunate that there are people with attitudes like that out there. But I fully support Anthony Rapp. I think he's one of the best parts of Discovery. I applaud Anthony Rapp for coming forward. And this is something that definitely needed to be addressed. Because it does, it ties with Star Trek. Zachary Quinto, also in Star Trek came in support of Anthony Rapp. So for the most part, the Star Trek family is very supportive. They take care of their own. So moving on to our Would You Buy It section. Now, Eric, will you be buying what's coming up here? At least one of them, yes. Absolutely, for sure. There's actually a a collection of things that we're talking about this time, and at least one of them is definitely on my radar, possibly a couple of these items. In general, yes. Yes, I will be buying at least part of this. I want to say yes, but there's a little caveat. If I'm pretty much done with collecting Power Rangers after the 25th anniversary, and if I can make some more room in my budget for another collection, I will get this. We're talking about the new McFarlane Toys. They recently got the Star Trek license earlier this year. And it's great because we're going to be getting figures of Kirk, Picard. They announced Michael Burnham and Takuvma from Discovery. These are going to be pretty much like the other figures that you see in stores now with like Marvel Legends and the DC Multiverse figures, the Power Rangers Legacy figures, where they're that larger six and a half to seven inch scale. They come with a bunch of accessories. The sculpts that they showed of Kirk and Picard are absolutely fantastic. They have these amazing 3D scans of the actors, and they've not only worked... Not not only just 3D scans, but, you know, they looked at multiple episodes and uh, really nailed these digital sculpts. And yeah. I was so impressed by how they nailed the likenesses in this scale. Yeah, that's why I'm definitely, uh, when the Picard one comes out, the Picard one's going to be on my desk at work. That's just going to be a thing that happens because these aren't even, like, ridiculously overpriced. We're looking at about 20 bucks is mm-hmm. what they're saying they're going to come out at. So that's not... That's not crazy. It, it's pretty high if you want, we're going to buy a bunch of them. But for me, I probably just want the Picard one. Yeah. And what really sold me on it is the fact that, first of all, these are uh, articulated figures. In fact, they actually have, I believe it's uh, 16 points of useful articulation. These can sit, stand, and kneel. So you can you can play with them if you want, <laughs> you know. And, you know, put them in different poses and such. You know, like I said, I'll have it at my desk at work, so I'll just yeah. keep playing with it between stuff. But the Picard figure is going to come with a Type 2 phaser from the next generation and the Rysian flute. 
Oh, that's that's fantastic. That sold it for me right there. (laughs) Yes, Picard with his flute. And then they haven't really shown what the Burnham and Takuma ones are going to look like yet. They just just that they are going to be coming. But they are doing a Discovery phaser replica. Oh, it looks so good. And if it's anything like what Art Asylum back in the day did, Diamond Select Collectibles, they also did Star Trek roleplay items. I have the Enterprise phase pistol and communicator set that they made. Not McFarlane, but, you know, someone else in the license. But, you know, if they do this Discovery phaser to the amount of detail that what they did for previous roleplay items... This is going to be fantastic. And actually, the uh, the phase pistol that was made a number of years ago, they actually used those as extra props in the production of Enterprise. Yeah, some of these props end up being so good that they're like, hey, why do we need to make stuff when we can just buy some of these toys? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they work. But yeah, this phaser, you know, it's a one-to-one scale, so it's the full size coming in fall of next year, so we got to wait a little while for it. But they're saying that it's going to be screen accurate and that it has play-action features, meaning buttons that you can push and things like that. Ooh. And it's only going to be running about 40 bucks, which isn't crazy for if it looks as good as I think it's going to look. A little on the high side if, it, if all you're wanting is a toy, but if you want a nice replica, I think that's uh, that's pretty good. I think it is too. Another thing that's coming up in the lineup, they're also going to do a deluxe 10-inch figure of Kirk, which will be in his command green uniform, and he will be buried in tribbles, like the episode Trouble with Tribbles. Fantastic. Now that's <laughs> the figure I would put on my desk. <laughs> because the look of Kirk in that episode, in that moment, where he's just like defeated and like, yeah, whatever. That's like a perfect work metaphor. <laughs> Some fantastic stuff is coming up from uh, McFarlane, and they announced that they have the entire license for Star Trek. It, it covers every single film and television series. In the prime timeline. That means there could be some other really awesome figures coming out. You know me, I love my next-gen. Oh, yeah. They do more next-gen figures. I will definitely be on board to pick up some more. I'd love a data figure. I would probably pick up the entire bridge crew for next-gen. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> probably have to do them one at a time over several months because, you know, even at only 20 bucks, that's that does add up pretty good when you're talking about, you know, six, seven, eight of them. There's several Deep Space Nine characters that I'd love to have too. So, yeah, if they start putting these out with the quality that they're yep. that they're showing with these first two with Kirk and Picard, I think I want the Kirk one too, actually. And yeah, the Kirk one comes with a phaser rifle from TOS. Yep. It comes with the two uh, hand phaser and a communicator. And again, you can pose it and play with it. I wouldn't be surprised if these figures also have a couple of swappable hands just to interact with some of these accessories, especially the the Ruskin flute for Picard. But if I can't get the entire bridge crew, I would at least want all of the captains. Yeah, probably where they'll start it. At least that's what it seems like. That's where they're going since Kirk and Picard. Maybe gauge interest, see how well they do, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, from there, branch out and say, like, okay, what do people want? And, and go from there, as opposed to just putting out everything all at once. And you know, it'd probably be much lower quality. As long as they're going to take their time and make them nice, I, I'll wait for them. Well, yeah, it's a definite would-you-buy-it-from-us 
So let's get into the main topic of our episode, which is a review of Star Trek Discovery Episode 7, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. And this is the second longest title in Discovery. (laughs) (laughs) But the quote actually comes from Homer's The Iliad, where the full quote is, There is the heat of love, the pulsing rush of longing, the lover's whisper, irresistible, magic, to make the sanest man go mad. We've been saying, oh, well, they're just going to say the title in the episode. But Mudd does say a variation of this title when he was talking about Stuart. Yeah, he said it's about uh, working a feat of magic that would uh, astound even the... uh, The sanest of people or whatever. Close! (laughs) He's working on it. I love the fact that they kind of let Rain Wilson loose in this episode and told him, okay, have some leeway with the character. And uh, a lot of his ad libs made it into the final episode, which is, which is pretty awesome. I was so thrilled with uh, his performance, but the synopsis for the episode as the, the USS discovery crew attempts to let loose at a party an unwelcome visitor comes aboard, bringing about a problematic and twisted sequence of events. And this episode takes place on Stardate 2136.8. And just for reference, this is the second time a Stardate was used on Discovery uh, because the first episode took place on Stardate 1207.3. Stardates have always been wildly all over the place in uh, (laughs) Star Trek. So I'm not going to try to put a mental energy into that but another tidbit of this episode was that we kind of feel like maybe at least a week or two have gone by since the last episode michael's talking about settling into a routine and we see this whole montage but another way we see that time has passed is that the death toll for starfleet personnel has gone up to around ten thousand people and when Michael Burnham first came on the Discovery, it was like 8,300-something. Yeah, I forget the exact total, but she knew it. It was like 8,126 or something like that. And so that means that in the time that she's been on the Discovery, they've lost a lot less than they did leading up to it. And a lot of that is explained by, you know, her kind of opening log entry um, is about how they're turning the tide of the war mm-hmm. with the So I think that really kind of ties into that. That's why they're able to have this party because yes, people are still being lost, but they're being lost a lot less often. Yeah. And we're taking more of them out. It seems because of what the discovery is able to do. Now, what I liked about the open scene and also to note, this was the first star Trek episode since encounter at far point that did not have a teaser. And when I first watched the episode, you know, it did the previously on Star Trek Discovery. After that, it went straight into the theme song. And I was like, wait, Wait, did my feed jump? Like, what happened here? I did the same thing. I rewound a little bit to make sure that I hadn't... I'm like, wait, did I miss something? And I like, like, nope, it just went straight into the title sequence from after the previously on. Okay. Yeah, ever since Encounter at Farpoint, we've always had the little teaser in any Star Trek show. And some of them have been far worse than others. 
But I kind of liked it for this episode because they didn't want any distraction to separate what timeline they were in. They wanted to go right into the setup. So the setup was that we get this great montage that does use some previous clips from past episodes. I was a little annoyed with it at first, but they changed some things enough and did a couple different shots where it makes sense. It fits with her log that, yes, this is a routine. She's finding the place on her ship. She's making friends. They're turning the tide, and she has these responsibilities. She's getting closer to Tyler, and she even admits that she finds him intriguing. And I really like that use of like the Vulcan terms that she uses. <laughs> That's high praise from a Vulcan. <laughs> but it also sets up uh, this party scene because she said because of her personal history, she feels it inhibits her ability to forge relationships. And she still feels alone, even though she's surrounded by crew members. And her biggest challenge that she says is that they're having a party. And I just thought that was so hilarious when she approaches the doors and it just kind of opens up and we see this really elaborate party and they're playing uh, Wyclef Jean samplings of staying alive and they're playing beer pong. And I thought it was hilarious though, because it seems that most of these crew members are younger. Lorca's getting the best and the brightest from Starfleet uh, and some of them, like Tilly, fresh out of the Academy or still in the Academy. Yep. And I thought it was appropriate. I don't know why they're listening to Wyclef Jean like 200 years later, why that's still popular. But. <laughs> party music is party music. We were out somewhere uh, just last year, and they played that Usher track from like 2000. And I was like, what? Are they <laughs> they're still playing that? And, but yeah, and it's still like everybody immediately, yeah, all right. And it got people out on the dance floor. So I'm like, there's there's always going to be those songs that just yep. stand the test of time, I suppose. And I think they wanted to make it recognizable as sure. As party music stuff that people would be would be jamming out to. Yeah, you gotta wonder if at some point music stopped becoming as active on Earth mm. as people progressed, especially when money isn't an object anymore. When people are like, okay, well, I can't become rich and famous because there's money to be had. So, do people right. explore it as much? And so maybe some older stuff is, is all that's available. Well, I would argue that because people are allowed to pursue their own betterment, that I think the people that are truly passionate about music are the ones to make it. So I would feel that maybe they would have the best music available. I feel like people truly passionate about music wouldn't make pop music though pop music is made to make money <laughs> no 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 i get that but like picard and company are still listening to classical music and by that time it's like 800 a thousand years old at that point <laughs> yeah so they're still listening to mozart and all that stuff so whatever recordings survive world war three i guess is what <laughs> you know they have available uh, so we get this very nice setup where we see the setup of the loop and we don't know if this is the first go around the second whatever but we have this establishing loop 
where Burnham goes to the party, Tilly tries to make her have a pass at Ash Tyler. They start to connect a little bit, but then they're called to the bridge. We have the Gormagander, and then that's when all hell breaks loose. On their way to the bridge on the first go-around, they bump into Lieutenant Stamets and Dr. Kubler, and they run into each other, and medical equipment goes flying everywhere, and Burnham apologizes, and we see Trippy Stamets. He's like, oh, why would you ever need to apologize for a random occurrence? So we don't see that, as we find out later in the episode, he's the one that's experiencing these loops all the time. That was what told me that that was definitely the first. Yeah. Like, that was the actual first occurrence of these events, because Stamets is essentially normal at that point. Normal, his new normal anyway. <laughs> yeah. He's not going like, hey, we've done this before. Like, he isn't experiencing deja vu or anything. He hasn't, nothing's gone weird for him yet. So I think that we are experiencing the very first time there. Yeah. That time, the very last time, are the only ones that I'm 100% sure that there aren't more in between. Right. And then they come across this Gormagander and it's an endangered species. I really liked this ploy of MUDs to use the Gormagander because as we saw in several, even when they looped, what I liked about these loops is that they weren't exactly identical. It wasn't like in TNG's cause and effect where they started to to have the the deja vu and they were able to predict what card was going to be coming out in the poker game because of it. Every time was just a little bit different because their reactions are just a slight, slightly different every time. But what was universal is the fact that Federation laws require them to take this Gormagander on board when they find it. And even when the person who the first time says, hey, it's our job to do this, says, you know what, actually, let's not. Somebody else steps up and says, no, we have to, you know, right. so the first time we have Burnham saying it's regulation, we have to do it. And Lorca giving me his my, my absolute favorite. I don't give a damn look and I don't give a damn line. That was great. Burnham's like, OK, I want to take point of this. I want to go to the shuttle bay. And he's like, all right, I'm give a damn. And then uh, Tyler requests uh, secure clearance. And then he <laughs> says, oh, I, I still don't give a damn. <laughs> It's just something that, it's like, dude, you're the captain of the starship. They're trying to follow protocol. And I think that's what makes Lorca great. He's so unpredictable. It was a fantastic setup, and I love the way that Mud was able to find a way that no matter what, they were going to bring that thing on the ship because somebody was going to point out that it was regulation and they had to. And, you know, so it was kind of cool to see that that happened a little bit differently, but the end result always ended up with the thing coming on board which is what he needed because he needed to get in in the first place yep. you know the first time he just climbs right out of it and starts shooting up the place then realizes okay i can't get as far that way so the next time that we see he transports out of it to, to another location and you know goes from there and that was so great too when he first came out we found out later through after trek we got confirmation but he was wearing an endorian space helmet it had the antenna and in the previews, I thought it was weird. I'm like, why is he wearing this weird bug mask? And then you look at it more closely and you're like, oh yeah, that would be for Andorians. And again, it's this Star Trek Discovery's way 
of mentioning Andorian somehow, but not freaking showing them. I'm getting tired of it. It's like they're playing with my heart right now. I put that in the in the notes later when we we're talking for for something we were talking about. I'm like, I won't forget to assume they're just taunting you, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it feels that way. But when he is in the shuttle bay, I think we see the chief medical officer. I think so too. And because at first I'm like, okay, we got a random doctor in the white suit. But then I I paused it and I looked closely. His badge has three pips on it. That's a commander in a doctor's uniform. So most likely they wouldn't have anybody ranked above commander on the ship besides the captain. Right. Most likely this random dude is the actual chief medical officer, at least right now. In IMDb, the actor who's playing this particular part is only credited as medical officer. He's only listed for one episode for this episode so we don't we don't see him again or if we do they're they're keeping it they're playing it close to the vest but yeah i don't see any other reason why we'd have a commander doc and he's the one who's first to respond to the the sick gormagander coming on board so that may have been the the current chief medical officer yeah it's just interesting that the main characters that we're coming across, like Dr. Kolber, he's a main cast member, but he's not like chief medical officer. And I think that's what's great about this show is that they're focusing on some of the more on another Star Trek series would be like an ancillary character. But now yeah. they're focusing on that because of the personalities and relationships of, of the main characters. And I think it's a unique and interesting thing that Star Trek Discovery is doing. I like it because I think it's more honest storytelling. Because, I mean, if you look at the command structure of anything, mm-hmm. you're not going to find necessarily the most interesting people aren't always going to be clustered at the top. Right. You know, they might be the best at those particular positions, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be the most interesting people and when you're telling me a story the characters in that story need to be the most interesting characters in the show and i think it's very honest for them to be like okay well here's the most interesting doctor we have he's not the chief medical officer but he's the most interesting doctor because he's interacting directly with the guy who runs the spore drive and it would make sense in a situation like this where they're dealing with this space whale and i like that michael just says that it's a space whale to tyler at one point uh, it's yeah. it's pretty hilarious. But it would make sense that this would be a duty for the chief medical officer on board. And yeah. that's not in Dr. Colbert's wheelhouse. So I really liked it. Like you said, it's more honest. And we're, since we're seeing this story from Michael's perspective, that way the chief medical officer can be a side character on the side. And she only interacts with him in a larger ship mission like dealing with a gormagander so then they tried to trap mud and then he blows up the ship for the first time or what we think is the first time yeah i believe that was the first run through because like i said we we do have that interaction between stamets and burnham in the hallway yeah where stamets at point is not indicating any sort of deja vu or that anything's going on so I think right. that that was the setup. That was we're seeing the very first run through, and that was when he, you know, he managed to get on the ship, but he wasn't able to get very far. And that's when he, you know, mm-hmm. makes a speech. He tells him, "I've got all the information I need for the next time," and nobody knows what he's talking about because everything everybody else is going to be erased. Their their memory of these events is going to be gone when it when it happens again, basically. Yeah. And speaking of statements, you know, we get more of his high on spores 
personality, especially at the beginning there. Yeah, montage. He's like tapping the console and, you know, doing one of those like, yeah, to Tilly and Michael. And I lost it at that point. I was like, man, he's just out of his gourd right now. Those are definitely some magic mushrooms he's playing with. But I'm wondering if this experience, you know, with him having to go through, who knows for sure how many times seeing the entire crew and himself die, is this going to to ground him a little bit? Is this going to bring him back a little bit to the normal level that we we saw at the beginning? Or is it going to immediately go back to the groovy stamets that we're getting from the spores? I'm curious to see how they're going to continue that on after this episode. I really hope it does ground him a bit more. Because especially by the end of that time loop, he was pretty much back to normal. It was like, look, this is the only thing I've been dealing with. And we got to get serious about this. Yeah. I think he still has a level head about him, especially towards the end of this episode. He was very much back to seemingly normal statements. But what I loved about just statements overall in this episode was that he really was able to help Michael in a way too. And even though she forgot literally everything except when they reset the timeline, he still told her pieces of what her and Ash went through. So I really like Stamets here because we got to learn more about his relationship with Dr. Kolber, how they first met. Mm-hmm. A wonderfully touching scene with him trying to teach Michael how to dance and sharing this story. And then was about to blow up. They were holding hands, just embracing the explosion for the next reset. Yeah. I thought that was such a beautiful moment and it really grounded the character. We did learn more about him and we see that once you're in his circle of friendship, he's not going to let you down. At first he's going to be distrustful of you. He might be a little snippy, call you a lurker, whatever. But once you prove yourself to him and once you actually become his friend, then those barriers start to go down a bit. That's what's great about this long form storytelling that Discovery is doing where we don't have their personalities all at once up front. You know, they don't fit a mold at first because we're learning about these characters through her perspective and they're opening up to her and we're seeing these characters unfold naturally. Yeah, I totally agree. I love the fact that he took the time out. Like he's in this situation where he's he's trying to impart as much information as possible. Each of these loops, he has a limited amount of time and he can't carry anything over that he hasn't learned himself. So he has to try to only gain their trust immediately. Like, Hey, this is happening. Here's what's going on. And you see those moments where he's literally repeating back word for word what she's going to say. Like, can we just get past that and to the part where you trust me? And when he finally figures out a way, like, okay, how can I get her to trust me? Okay, I'll get her to tell me something that she wouldn't tell anybody else so that when I say it, she'll believe that we've had this conversation before. Yeah. And the secret that she tells him is so sad. And the look on his face when he tells you, he's just like, I'm sorry. And that was a great moment too, because he knows what it's like to be in love. He's with his partner and he feels some sympathy for her. And again, greatly acted very well done. Yeah, it was a, it was a great scene. And he, the fact that he takes a moment out and you're like, he's trying to get all this stuff accomplished, but then he's like, you know what? What's one more loop? 
dance with me. <laughs> you know? At that point, he's just like, okay, you know what? I need a break. We're not going to do it this loop. It's not happening this time. And so the fact that he would take that time out and that he was ground enough to realize, okay, you know what? We're going to have another go round at this. So might as well do some, even if it doesn't stick, it's something I can tell them about later if we survive all this. Yeah, so let's talk more about the time loop. So if we take Mud at face value, he makes a statement where he says that he's killed Lorca 53 times. After that loop, we see an additional three loops. And they mention that the, the loop is only 30 minutes long. So if you're just counting those instances, 28 hours have passed between the beginning of the episode and the end of that. That's nuts. <laughs> I think there's probably more than that even. I'm thinking the way that Mud said it, when he said, I've had the pleasure of killing you 53 times, but who's counting? I don't think he's counting the times when he just blew up the ship completely. I think he's only counting the times when he directly himself, oh. Lorca, when he shot him or when he transported him into space or shot him with a different gun or shot him with a different setting or shot him with a different gun on a different setting. I'm just mad that he didn't. You can't tell me that Lorca doesn't have a Veronti somewhere. <laughs> I wanted to see that so bad. That would have been so perfect. But I think that he was just counting those instances where he face to face directly killed Lorca himself. So there were probably others. And I also believe that there were probably many more than three loops after that. Sure. We saw a few of them. The only time that I think we really just went from one loop directly to the next for sure was when Michael swallowed the dark matter thing. And then the next loop, they had everything worked out because I think they had everything worked out to where they'd given all the information to Stamets. Like, okay, here is what you've got to do. We're going to have to you get me. We go here. We go here. We go to the captain. And even then... Lorca still, when they're like coming to them, you see that you don't hear the conversation at all. You just see the pre tail end of it when he just gets up and says, okay, fine, whatever. And just like, <laughs> he still kind of got this, I don't give a damn attitude. Like he gets up and he lets them start playing with his chair. He's still at that point, just kind of, you know, when they're not in battle, he's a very hands-off captain. <laughs> he really is. Just get it done. I don't really care the hows or the whens. Just make sure it's done when it's supposed to be. But when it comes to our mission, the war, that's when he gets serious. Yeah. That's when it's like, okay, now you're dealing with Mr. Man. It could have been several days, I think. I hope it's not seven days just for statements like sanity. <laughs> Yeah, well, you see him progressing throughout the, like, he starts out in full uniform, and then, like, as it goes, he's got his uniform opened more and more, he's just got the, the belt on, so he's got the equipment, and he's just, like, all slouched, and just like, ugh. And we see Mud, you know, taking a break to eat a sandwich at one point, you know, and we see him yawning at another point, so we know he's taking his time as well, although he technically could have rested whenever he wanted to, I suppose, and just, you know, taking a break between loops. But yeah, that was some good touches all around. Like you said, he was eating. And I did notice him yawn at one point. I was like, oh yeah, he has been at this a while. He would be a little mentally exhausted. We've seen a couple time loops before in Star Trek. Of course, cause and effect from TNG. In Enterprise, uh, Future Tense. That was another one where we saw a time loop. And... Mm -hmm. Speaking of future tenth, and this is something I noticed in the episode. So at one point, they mention these time crystals. That's what mm -hmm. Mud has been using on his wrist to 
reset this time loop and it's powered by a much larger crystal inside the ship which is inside the gormagander at first like, time crystals that's so like what i thought the terminology was bad at first i was like man are they really saying something like like time crystals it just sounds something that they would dumb down for for the audience and why connect this to a future tense I'll, I'll get back to that in a bit but when doing the notes for this episode i came to find out that time crystals are a real thing Star Trek writers are incorporating real science into the show, of course, like they always do. And in the Star Trek universe, this is just another one of the many ways to conduct time travel. And if you look up Time Crystal on Wikipedia, this was something that's only been developed and proven by scientists in the past five years. And it was only this year that the experiments that were done for these time crystals those experiments were published this year in nature magazine and so it's exactly what michael describes in the episode it's three-dimensional crystals that are repeating in space but remain unchanged in time and they said it's a non-equilibrium system they they mentioned that in the episode and that non-equilibrium phrasing is what triggers burnham to think about time crystals and yeah. I thought it was brilliant by the Star Trek writers to incorporate science that's happening right now and use it as a plot device for this episode. When they first started talking about it, I just assumed it was just a random, arbitrary type of plot device used to... Star Trek has always used random ways to achieve time travel when they wanted to do a time travel story. You know, whether it's... a transporter accident or slingshotting around the sun or the guardian yeah you get to the second season of uh, the original series and they don't even show the time travel part they just mention in the log oh yeah we slingshot around the sun and went back in time because that was our mission to do so like what really you just do that now <laughs> <laughs> okay you know it was a cool episode yeah i'm talking about uh, assignment earth uh, second season of original series but yeah, they just started with Captain's Log. We slung out around the sun and traveled back in time to the late 1980s. <laughs> like, wait, you did? Why did... What? <laughs> we only talked about this one other time when you had to do that to get back to your... Wait a minute. So yeah, they can just do it whenever they want now. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was just kind of an arbitrary plot device. Just, okay, mm -hmm. well, Mud has been able to find this time ship or get this time ship or buy this time ship from some other place that happens to be powered by crystals. And it's... But... No, the fact that they're using something that, you know, again, stretching real science sure. to its <laughs> boundaries by far, but still using something that, that has a basis in science. And that is just cool because that, again, it, it ties it back down to, to being sci-fi instead of fi-sci, you know, mm -hmm. I, I dig it. I dig it a lot. That's really cool that they're doing that. I mentioned a future tense, and here's something where I kind of tied it into that episode. So, Burnham mentions that a fourth-dimensional species helps in the creation of these time crystals. I was listening to the Engage podcast, and they brought up a good point. We're actually a fourth-dimensional species. Because we can sense time, and, and we experience time. I think what she meant to say was, was a fifth-dimensional species species because they would be able to manipulate the fourth dimension which is time we can't manipulate time we're just bound to the effects of it but i was thinking could this be the tholians 
because they were shown to be participants in the temporal cold war in enterprise in the episode future tense which also dealt with time loops and tholians are in the original series we know about them the tholian assembly all of that stuff so my thinking is and you know tholians are very crystalline in structure to begin with i'm wondering if the time crystals came from the tholians if mud made a deal with the tholian assembly and uh, procured some of these time crystals yeah it's definitely a possibility or it, more likely knowing mud he bought it on the black market or sure it was owned to him by somebody in order to get a particular job done or to pay back a debt because it's mentioned that mud has debts all over the place oh yeah i think that a lot of that has to do with the tech and such that he has available to him the fact that he has these things it leads me to believe that he's gone further into debt to try to dig himself out once and for all you know that one big score which is what this whole discovery job is supposed to be Mm -hmm. for him so i don't necessarily think that he made an alliance with whatever race developed this time ship or these time crystals but he may have gone into debt to one of them in particular or to a specific group of them to get this technology for the use uh, specifically to get this job done and when tilly did the scan of the ship inside the gormagander it looked very angular much like a tholian ship so i think it's a reference to the tholians even though they weren't really mentioned but this trekkie can connect the dots yeah and if the ship vanished the same way the the device on his arm vanished when they rejoined the time stream then yeah we may never know right that poor gormagander Oh, no, he went through so much. <laughs> I hope that ship did vanish at the end of the time stream, meaning that he would have started feeling better probably and they would have been able to release him back into space. But speaking of the Gormagander, yes. the next topic that we were going to touch on is the blossoming relationship between Burnham and Tyler mm-hmm. that we see. And I love the fact that they kind of mirror the Gormagander's existence to what Michael is kind of going through in her own life. Lorca at one point says, I thought they were hunted to, to extinction. And Michael points out that, no, they're not. it wasn't hunting that's causing their extinction. It's the fact that they, they aren't mating. They're so focused on just eating and staying alive that they forget to do anything else, including reproduce. And Lorca says, wow, that is like the sorriest existence I've ever heard of or something like that. He's like, oh, my God. That's the saddest existence I can think of. (laughs) Yeah, we know he likes his loving. So um, (laughs) but it's kind of you look at that and then you look at the fact that, oh, what's Michael doing? She's getting by. She's doing her job. She's focused. She's falling into this routine that doesn't really involve any type of Mm -hmm. uh, personal relationship definitely not something that would go as far as mating so the fact that they're kind of using this to point out that hey you know look what happens if you live this kind of life if you don't open yourself up Mm -hmm. to the possibility of love then you could end up like this poor gormagander just going through life destined to die alone because it won't bother I thought it was a little bit heavy handed okay I get it they're making the connection between her and the gormagander To me, it felt a little bit more heavy-handed. But one of the things that I loved about this whole Burnham and Tyler thing, when Tilly was saying, hey, you know, what's your deal? 
uh, in the most gifable reaction in history. <laughs> but Tilly, when she says, well, just do what you did with your previous boyfriends. And Michael makes that very clear defection. Well, what would you do? Clearly, she's never had a boyfriend before, because how could you? She even says that it wouldn't be appropriate on the Shenzhou, which was seven years. And then she came straight from Vulcan with that. Mm -hmm. And this thought hit me when I was watching the episode. I think Michael's a virgin. I don't think she's gone the distance. (laughs) (laughs) It's very possible. And I wonder if they'll explore that at all or not or if they'll just leave it at that yeah. she has been in a serious relationship or if they'll actually go that extra step of connecting the dots so to speak i'm not disparaging or shaming or, or anything like that but it just makes her more relatable that sometimes it's hard to find love and we may be so busy in our careers and in our lives and so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't open up for the possibility of love. And I thought that was just a great message for Burnham to learn about, you know, to open up the possibility for a relationship. And this whole episode, they shared a kiss in one time loop because, you know, Tyler was basically like, F it, I may never get another chance. And he kisses her and they shared the dance together it made me go, oh man, I really hope he's not Vogue <laughs> because this is going to be screwed up. Oh man. And that's, you know, I, that, that was my thought too. I'm like looking, I'm like, I love our little Vogue Tyler theory that we've got going on. And I know there are lots of things that could point to that direction with the whole actor thing and the IMDb credits for this person who doesn't seem to exist <laughs> other than these two episodes. You've got all this stuff going on that points to that possibility, but you also have a clever production and writing team. So they may have put all this stuff out there on purpose. Right. So they would be focusing on this theory and totally miss what's really happening. And I'm, I'm really kind of hoping that's the case because I'm really starting to like this dude. Yeah. He does this rousing speech in the party that gets everyone misty eyed and like reflective. It's like, this is a smooth talking guy. And the way that he's able to integrate so quickly, you know, within a matter of maybe a couple weeks as chief of 30, he's settled into this role. And even at one point, I think it was the first loop statement says, you're very well adjusted to someone who's been tortured by the Klingons for seven months. And I'm questioning everything. Is that a misdirection by the writers? Are they saying, hey, Tyler should be a little bit more crazy because PTSD (laughs) and all that stuff, or maybe not, dun, 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 and it's driving me nuts. And this episode, I was rooting for Burnham and Tyler, and they're totally playing at my heartstrings here because I'm ready for Ty Ham or (laughs) Burnler. I'm ready for that ship. Oh, absolutely. And here's my running theory right now. If Tyler is Vogue surgically altered to look human, I think that maybe he's also had his identity completely repressed and covered by this identity of Tyler that they've taken, you know, kind of like they did in uh, Deep Space Nine with Mm -hmm. the um, with that Cardassian girl that they turned into a Bajoran and then later tried to convince Mm -hmm. her father that 
Kira was her and all that stuff. But the theory holds, especially when you consider that the episode Lethe, they took that name from the name of a character in a TOS episode that dealt with a machine that was designed to wipe minds. So you do have that kind of tie-in, mm-hmm. too. So they could be building up to something where Tyler legitimately falls in love with Burnham yep. and then has his original identity restored as Vogue, but still retains the memories of being Tyler. So now he's like, oh, I hate this person. She killed Takuvma, but I'm in love with this person. And so yeah. I'm wondering if we're going get that struggle within if he turns out to be Vogue, but if we're going to get that whole thing, because I don't think that anybody could pretend to be this guy. Definite mind wiping or something involved, if that's the case. Oh, yeah, because there's things that Tyler is doing. He's eating foods that Vogue would never eat. His English is perfect. And to add on to your theory, obviously there was a real Tyler at some point where they would get these memories from. Yeah, they were able to find the records. Yeah, he said graduated top of his class. He's an actual member of Starfleet. His records are all there. I don't think their spy network is so advanced that they'd be able to place false Starfleet records. So I think at the Battle of Binary Stars, they took some hostages in some skate pods and completely mind transferred or copied the memories of one prisoner to Voke now. So I think that there is real Tyler out there. And wouldn't that be something if maybe they come across the real Tyler or they rescue the real Tyler? Hanging on to him in case they need information or something. Right. It'd be really interesting. I do know that among several scenes that I kind of tried to go through frame by frame as much as I could to, to see a few things. In this episode, you've got this doctor here. How many pips has he got? And I had to you know freeze it because he wasn't on screen long enough to see that he was a commander until I paused it. I also paused and went through as close to frame by frame as I could just using the web interface. The scene where Tyler is disintegrated by the dark matter. If there was any hint of Klingon physiology <laughs> under there somewhere, just to see if they give us a glimpse, like if they're like maybe as his face oh, no, is disintegrating. <laughs> <laughs> like just, just sub. Like I did just to see if maybe. I thought about that too when he disintegrated. I'm like, I was like, oh, is there a Klingon skull? Is there a Klingon skull? Oh, no Klingon skull. But it went by so fast. Pause, unpause, pause, unpause, pause, unpause. <laughs> it looked human all the way through. And to be fair, he's probably had to pass physical scans and such in order to be assigned to the ship and everything. So I'm sure if he is actually Voke, then he has been altered sufficiently to pass as human even to scan. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, we mentioned Harry Mudd's resources to do this caper, the Andorian helmet, the ship, the time crystal, the weapons. Tyler even mentions that he used something similar to do a bank heist on Beta Z, which, if you're a Federation species, I don't know why you would have a bank, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> probably have the holy chalice of reeks in there. Probably. But I just like that he planned this caper. I really like the whole caper aspect of this. I love the way it ended. It ended in a very original series vibe. Yep. Their ship, Baron Grimes, the father of Stella, Stella Grimes. And it was great because even their outfits were very reminiscent of William Ware Thace, his outfits that he designed for the original series. You know, they had glitter and, and trim and even their outfits look very original series like. 
And I love that Stella, she had the red hair, just like the robot in the Harry Mudd episodes in the original series when he recreated his wife. But I think it's more like a demonized version of his wife because <laughs> other than that, then she just badly ages in 10 years. Like, holy cow. <laughs> It's an interesting callback, but at the same time, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of have to, yeah. to look over a little bit. But but yeah, you obviously he had a ton of resources. Like I said, I think it was he went into debt to get these things with the promise of a bigger pay. Where he could just settle his debts. Yeah. He's got these resources. He's obviously had access to them before if he's used these time crystals in the past to pull off this other heist so you got to wonder how many times has he done something like that where he's been able to take something mm -hmm. using these time my only problem with this episode in the way that it ends is that they let him go and i know tyler said just promise that he'll never be out of stella's sight okay but he still knows that the Discovery has a spore drive. He can still sell that information to the Klingons. He can still tell them about their security measures. He still has all this knowledge that he can still pass on to someone. And not on top of that, while he didn't kill anyone in the final reset, there was still attempted murder 53 times. He's still a freaking psychopath. And... I just didn't like that Starfleet would be so willing to just give him up to civilians. Yeah. I think what it comes down to, the way that I would explain it away, you know, in order to, to make it, because here's the thing, even though I did think it was kind of silly, especially in light of how this entire series has been kind of a more serious, dark take on the Star Trek universe in general, it does seem kind of silly to just be like, Okay, all right. Oh, you scamp. Now, now go off with your uh, wife and What a punishment. Klingon prison ship or beautiful but annoying wife. <laughs> like, oh boy. Wow, what a hard punishment. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but assume that, that the time crystal ship did disappear at the same time that his device did. They don't have any proof that anything happened. Because as far uh... as they know, they only have stamens. He's the only person who can say... These are all the things that happened because as far as they're concerned, that was the first time. They caught him in the act of trying to do it, but he never actually did it, even though he did do it probably 60 plus times. So they don't have the proof necessarily to do anything officially. Uh, sure. But he still broke into a top secret ship. And knows that they have a top secret spore drive. I think at this point, they've proven that the Klingons know that that's what they have. The fact that is they, they don't have any way to make one of their own because they don't have a stamens. And I'm not just talking sure. about him being able to connect to the drive via the tardigrade DNA. I'm talking about they don't have his science or the only other person who knew it as well is dead now, too. So they can know that it exists all they want. It does them the same amount of good it does me to know that it exists. I can't make yeah. it just because I know that it <laughs> it's a thing. I can't build the thing. He still broke into a Starfleet ship, and I feel that they should... No, no, it is a little silly, but <laughs> I did like it because of the fact that it kind of called back to how Kirk and company punished him in iMud. Yeah, that's it true. It was kind of the same thing. He did all these bad things. He took an entire ship hostage. He was going to steal the Enterprise. <laughs> and they managed to foil him, and all they did was leave him on his planet full of slave robots, 
but they made several of them his wife and they turned off the command for them to shut up when he tells them to. <laughs> That's so true. Now he's got several of his wives nagging him on this planet for however long he's stuck there. And so it was kind of a fun throwback. It, it was a very classic throwback to the original series. And overall, this was a very fun, interesting episode. I like that it was kind of a break from all the serious business that we've got from the last six episodes. Yeah, this is one of the first episodes that tells its entire story all at once. It really, besides the interpersonal relationships, it doesn't push any of the main plot along from anything else. So it's a one-off, it's an episode that can be enjoyed completely independently, which, well, I love those type of episodes, I also love the the bigger story arcs, but I like when they're able to mix those in. I like when we're able to have one or two episodes that are just great all by themselves, and you don't have to watch the entire series to get it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think this was a fantastic job by the Discovery cast and crew, And they gave us a really memorable episode in the midst of this heavy storytelling. So, very well done. Like I said, I'm okay with the ending because I can explain that away and kind of laugh it off with the tieback. My one complaint is, how in the world is the captain's chair considered a non-critical system? (laughs) In theory, he should be able to control the majority of the ship from that chair. Like, that's the point of that chair is that if everybody else is dead, he should be able to at least get to a star base from that chair. How in the world is that considered a non-critical system? Yeah, that was a little weird, but I'll forgive it because the pace of the episode was nice and I think it was good. There there wasn't any to to pick some other non-critical system (laughs) that they could convince him to use. Like the replicators? Or... Yeah, like, like how else would they be able to get, you know, like they said, the ship's library was non-critical system. That's how they were able to find out information about Stella mm-hmm. and Baron Grimes. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That's fine. Um, we've seen similar in uh, Rascals in TNG when they were able yep. to use the non-critical systems such as the learning computers in the school to be able to access some information. But how would you convince Mud to use the ship's library computer to contact the Klingons uh, right. and announce his presence? No, you, there's no reasonable way to make that happen. You can make him use the captain's chair if you can convince him to sit in it. You know, <laughs> so I guess if you when you need to push the story along, sometimes you have to make those leaps. And it didn't take me out of the moment enough. It was it was one of those things that I thought about the third time through. Sure, not the first time through, not even the second time through. Watching it three times, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and overall, like I said, it's a fantastic episode. Now we have some more callbacks. First, the cast: Catherine Burrell is the actress to portray the character of Stella Mudd. Kay Elliott originated the role in the original series episode, I, Mudd. This episode marks the first known 23rd century time travel loop and the first chronological time travel event before the original series episode, The Naked Time, which was the first of three such time travel episodes in season one of the original series. The next two were Tomorrow is Yesterday and also the classic city on the edge of forever at one point saru mentions that the bomb that mud was using was a urium and ancinium bomb and this was also the bomb that was used in the next generation episode night terrors 
where Bella Tykin used anthonium and urium from his cargo to create a massive explosion to free a ship which was trapped in a rift in space. Not one of my favorite TNG episodes, but uh, still a nice hack. Yeah. I really like that this shows that the crew and the writers are pulling from even some episodes that we haven't thought about in years. <laughs> They're really digging through Memory Alpha, I think, <laughs> and, and, you know, really tying everything together. And I really like that because it helps establish Discovery is part of the Prime universe, and it's showing that the writers are knowledgeable about the continuity and that they're able to work within the continuity. Why make up some bomb compound when you have a bomb compound that's already been used before in Star Trek? So you don't have to make something up, you just pull from existing canon and i think that's a really good touch that the writers are doing like i said i love that even though we're not seeing the andorians <laughs> and the fact that we got to see an andorian space helmet which we never seen before not even in enterprise which featured andorians heavily i thought it was a great production choice it, it was kind of stylistically cool because it looks like something from the 1950s, yet that's what the Andorians use. For us, that would look like some 50s Bugman. Like, it totally reminded me of the Fallout series, because in one of their DLCs, there's a guy who can control bugs with a helmet, and his helmet is very bug-like. So when I first thought about it, I was like, man, did one of the producers like really like Fallout or something? Or Ant-Man. Yeah, or Ant-Man. But when they confirmed that it was an Andorian helmet... I instantly, I was like, oh yeah, of course, the antenna, the blue, which they like in their tech and on themselves, obviously. And, and just like an actual Andorian space suit would have to have, they had to put cooling units inside the helmet yep. for rain. <laughs> it was fantastic. I loved every part of this episode. And again, if we never see Harry Mudd again in this series, I think Rain Wilson did a fantastic job. We even got the explosion and the I'm not mad, I'm mud line from the trailers. So yeah. I feel this might be the last time we see them because that's all the footage that we've seen of him that was used in the trailers. At least for this season. And now that we know they've been renewed for season two, it's yeah, it's, it's very possible we get a mud episode in season two, I think. But sure. I, I'm pretty sure we're done with Mud for season one. I love Doreen Wilson. He was fantastic. It was just absolutely fantastic. I loved his uh, the killing of Lorca montage when he's kind of reminiscing about all the different <laughs> ways. He's ad-libbing a lot. They told him, like, just go in there and just just call the people whatever you want. And I love <laughs> the fact that even, like, hey, not even you, random communications officer guy. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that that made the final cut is just fantastic. I love when he calls Gabe. <laughs> oh yeah oh gabe it's gabriel Lorca. okay like i'm like oh man and i love that he picks up there what does this do does it melt brains i bet it melts brains oh it was so great and he was calling saru like string bean and a stretch yeah yeah it was so great i didn't know that he was given the amount of ad-libbing that he was given but it works when you have someone like him who is really comedic and has perfect comedic timing and he's also a writer and he's directed stuff before i just feel that they really picked such a great actor to inherit the character of uh, harcourt fenton mud 
just brilliant casting and it worked in full display in this episode and i love all the story stuff that discovery is doing but this just has to be my favorite random filler episode it's really high up there in terms of star trek episodes for me yeah, it's one of those things that doesn't really add a whole lot to the primary plot that we're dealing with, other than some of the interpersonal relationships. You know, it, it does help. It gives us a little bit more backstory into uh, Stamets and Kubler. It gives us a little more of a springboard into the Tyler and Burnham situation. We got Lorca's I Don't Give a Damn Face, which was worth every penny right there. <laughs> Just these little things it, it does give us, but the main story doesn't tie into really the rest, other than the fact that... You we don't even see any Klingons. We don't see a Klingon ship. We never see them. They're just talked about. Like he, he tries to contact them yep. and that's it. So it doesn't really tie into the rest of the storyline. It's kind of that one off. Let everything else settle. Let the rest of the storyline catch up with you. And then here's an episode for fun almost. It was fantastically well done. And it's definitely one that I will go back and watch by itself again. It's one of those ones that I'll be able to point to people to and be like, hey, here's an opportunity to check out some of these characters. If you haven't invested in the whole show yet, but you want to maybe get a glimpse, instead of telling them to start at the very beginning or even to start at episode three, this is a good place to, to point people, you know, hey, check out episode seven. Check that episode out. If you if you dig the style, the theme, and, and can get behind some of these characters, then go back and see how they, um, they got there. So I love that basically in the middle of the first season, we're getting that kind of episode that we could point people to later on as an entry point to whet the appetite for these characters without really intruding on the story arc. Yeah, very well done. We definitely recommend this episode. It was fantastic. Unfortunately, we do not have a subspace channels question this week but we do have a quantum state that we are flexing about we do indeed as i talked about the last couple of weeks i've been doing a rewatch i randomly every now and then just go through and rewatch some of these series you know i love star trek obviously and i've been doing a rewatch recently i just i finished uh, i did i started with tng this time went on to deep space nine and then jumped back to tos and right now I'm about uh, eight episodes deep in season three of TOS in that rewatch. But when I was at the beginning, when I was in the first season of TOS, I'm sitting at work, I'm watching this at work. So I'm not really focused on the screen. I'm, I'm doing my job and I'm also you know, just kind of listening. Mm-hmm. And I hear this. Iron silica body, planet size, magnitude 1E. We'll be passing close. Inconceivable this body has gone unnoted on all our records. And yet, here it is. No time to investigate. Fire stations gather data for computer banks. Uhura, notify the discovery on subspace radio. Strong interference on subspace, Captain. What? <laughs> That's what I said to myself. I literally was like, wait, what? And I like stopped what I was doing. I'm in the middle of entering a prescription. I stop what I'm doing. <laughs> I turn and I jump back a few seconds on the screen. I'm like... Did I hear what I think I heard? I turned the the captioning on so I could see what was being said. Sure enough, Kirk says, notify the discovery. And in the subtitles even, they have discovery italicized to indicate that proper noun. So I'm like, oh, sweet. They mention the discovery. It's just a simple little thing. You know, it's not a big deal. It's just, oh, hey, cool. A ship named Discovery still exists by the time TOS season one is happening. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same discovery. We know they reuse ship names. 
obviously the Enterprise is the only one that's been reused and kept the same call sign with just adding letters that we know of. But other ship names have been reused. We know that in the 13th TOS, there is a Defiant. Yep. In the Tholian web, actually, they are trying to find the Defiant, which is having issues. So it's like we know that they reuse these ship names. So it's not like a big deal. It's not like, oh, my God, it changes everything. No, it's just a cool little throwback. So I had posted on one of the uh, – I'm in a couple of Facebook groups talking about Discovery. And I was like, hey, guys, check this out, especially since it happened the same week that Burnham – Name drops the Enterprise on, I happened to find it the same week. You mentioned it to Aaron and I, and I was like, whoa, I gotta see this for myself. And I just happened to be on lunch at that time. And so I pulled it up on CBS All Access. I turned the captions on. Sure enough, it said the Discovery. It was, Discovery was italicized, which means a proper name. I took a couple screenshots and I tweeted about it. Eric J. Dewey on Twitter, he mentioned this and and holy cow, here it is. It's like, oh my God, there's a cool little reference. This thing is still being retweeted and liked about today by people. (laughs) And at one point I got into, it wasn't an argument, but people were like, Listen, it's this script thing. It wasn't meant to be Discovery. When they announced Discovery two years ago, when that was the ship name, people already brought this line up. It's been disproven. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you get all these Trek experts who dive in and have the original scripts. And it was meant to be said this way, but Shatner said it this way. And it's just a grammatical error or whatever. My thing is, can we just have fun with it and think that, yes, Kirk meant the Discovery, which we know is out there, and it can be a fun little tieback, unintentional or not, to a new bright gleaming show, which takes place 10 years before Kirk and Spock. Can we just have fun with it? (laughs) There's so many people who are ready and willing to jump on any little thing that doesn't fit into continuity. Any little thing, like, we could easily have jumped on the fact that the site-to-site transport, for example. Like, we're talking about technology that looks ahead of its time. You know, some of it can just be explained away by newer show, bigger budget. Okay, I get it. We don't want the ships to look like they looked in the original series because that would be crappy. I mean, they did what they could with the budget they had at the time that they had it, and that's what they're doing now. And so I'm okay with that. But you have stuff like Lorca uses site-to-site transport because he can't be arsed to to walk, you know, just because he wants to. It has nothing to do with an emergency or anything. They don't use site-to-site transport in the original series until season three, and even then it's used as an emergency and it's warned against because it's unreliable. And they're using it willy-nilly in Discovery. Do I care? No, not at all. But if you want to find a continuity error, there you go. There's something to pick on. Why are you so ready, these same people, ready to disprove something that does fit into continuity perfectly? Regardless of, yes, the original script, it says, Uhura, report the discovery, lowercase discovery, on subspace radio. Report, not notify. So that one word completely changes the meaning of the sentence, yes. However, Shatner said notify. That's what got aired. Yep. That's in the show. And the context of it was enough to obviously fool the captioners who thought when he said notify the discovery that okay, that must mean the discovery because otherwise the sentence doesn't make sense. And the only argument that I've heard against it being that other than the fact that okay, whoever wrote the script 
yes, they intended for it to just be report the discovery. Okay, that, that's a fine sure. argument, but we've got to deal with what's actually on screen is what's canon. The only argument that I've heard is that, oh, well, it makes it sound like lazy writing if they mention the discovery as a ship once and then never again. I'm sorry, what? How many times have we had ship names just listed off in different episodes and then never mentioned again? <laughs> ship <laughs> listed all the time. How is it lazy writing to mention a ship name? Okay, we didn't have time to find out, okay, maybe the Discovery to be the closest ship to them. And Kirk should know, as captain of the ship, what Starfleet vessels are closest to him. Maybe they just met with the Discovery recently, so they know the Discovery's in the area, and they're on their way to somewhere else. Maybe they know, based on the mission briefings that Starfleet has put out, that the Discovery is the next ship that's supposed to come through and chart this area. We're on our way somewhere else. Because that's what he says. He says, we don't have time to check this out. We're on a mission. We've got someplace else to be. So tell the Discovery instead, because they're the next that's supposed to be coming through here. Besides, the Discovery that we know is a science ship that's been purposed for war. But their main mission is science. They can support over 300 science missions on the ship. It's meant for this job. <laughs> Plus the fact that they don't need to mention it again because the notification never reaches there. Uhura says, I can't get through on subspace. This thing is blocking it. And then throughout the rest of the year, this is in the Squire of Gothos, right. by the way. This planet they find ends up following them and trapping them. And we end up finding this almost Q-like creature who tries to play with the crew of the Enterprise. And then we find out that it's just a little kid Q, basically. Um, and its parents come and give him a spanking and send the Enterprise on its way. But the point is, you don't need to mention it again because that signal never reached its destination, exactly. regardless of whether that destination was the Discovery or just Starfleet in general. They never got the signal out, so there's no reason to mention it again. So it's not lazy writing to, to think of it as the discovery it's perfectly fine so i'm choosing to go with that canon in my mind yep. is what was actually aired and somebody else had tried to claim that shatner did say uhura notify of the discovery on space which is still grammatically shaky but yeah. leans more towards the original script however like you just heard the audio i pulled that audio directly from the episode and i enhanced it and i made sure i listened very very carefully on loud volume to see if the word of fit anywhere in there it does not no and you can't tell me oh because he had his back to the camera that he said it no there's different people doing these transcriptions for the closed caption because it's not italicized on the dvds and then here it is again on the cbs all access and it's italicized unless in a different language in other languages than english it didn't get italicized or capitalized evidently yes but it was enough to fool people who are responsible for doing these captionings and Again, my biggest thing is it changes absolutely nothing about no. either storyline. Unless their intention is to destroy the Discovery and make a big deal about how we will never name another ship Discovery because of what happened on this ship or something like that. Unless that's their big plot point that they're going to reveal at some point, there's no reason that a ship named Discovery can't exist in Season 1 of TOS. Yeah. Suck it, nerds. Because... <laughs> It's my headcanon. We just out-nerded you, is what we did. I don't understand the desire to disprove it. That's what got me. It's not just the fact that some people were like, I don't think that's what they meant. And people were like, no, no, they didn't mean that, and here's why, and it doesn't make sense. Whoa, dude. Yeah, calm down. Personally, for me to think that maybe he's talking about a ship. 
show me on the doll where he hurt you. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's like we have something that can make it fit nicely into canon. And when they give us this opportunity, it's like the fans are like, wow, let me pull out my script. And this is what it really means. And even people high up involved in the production saying, well, they didn't mean a ship. Okay, but why can't we turn this grammatical mistake into a ship? I don't see the problem with it. To me, it's not a big deal. Obviously, people high enough up in the production that didn't care, because at this point, this is again about halfway through season one. So Shatner wasn't big enough to be throwing his weight around to be like, I'm not doing any more retakes. If he messed up the line and they really wanted him to fix it, they could have said, hey, Bill. You said the wrong word. (laughs) Take two. They would have had that power to do so. The fact is they didn't because it didn't matter. And so it doesn't matter. And as far as I'm concerned, in the Squire of Gothos, Kirk tried to notify the Discovery. So that's our headcanon. We're sticking to it. The fandom has put us in a flux, but now we're all fluxed out. (laughs) Um, Mr. Dewey, if people want to find you online where would they be able to do so uh these days i'm most active on the twitters you can follow me at eric j dewey and uh where could they find you they can find me at trekkieb 47 you can find me there on instagram most active on twitter you can also check out the ranger command power hour podcast the other podcast i host on the four-eyed radio network and we have many great shows on the four-eyed radio network anything to suit your nerdy appetites so just join us at foureyedradio.com and check out our show at sf escape pod on twitter and sf escape pod Don't forget to give our absent host a follow on Twitters as well. Uh, You can find him at Nova Charter. That's Aaron's Twitter handle. So yeah, and he will be back in a couple weeks. So you guys have one more nerdy episode to listen to us for episode eight of Star Trek Discovery, and I'm looking forward to that because of the amazing trailer. This looks like a Saru episode coming up, and. I am very interested in everything that's going on. I felt it in a little Saru light the last couple episodes, so I'm looking forward to this next one. Until we review that episode, you can escape with us anytime, and we'll catch you next time. You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod.com. Like us on Facebook.com slash SFEscapePod. And add us to your circle on Google Plus by going to google.sfescapepod.com.